Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. Lintzel Train, of course, is a household name in investment terms, and we've spoken with both Michael Lintzel and Nick Train in these interviews in the past. What is probably less known, however, is that in terms of portfolio construction, there is a third individual who has equal input into the decisions. With that in mind, I'm delighted to be joined by James Bullock, Joint Portfolio Manager for the Lintzel Train Global Equity Fund. James joined Lintzel Train in October 2010 and is Joint Portfolio Manager for Lintzel Train's Global Equity Portfolios, as well as the Portfolio Manager for the North American Equity Fund. He has a Master's Degree in Physics from the University of Oxford and a Doctorate in Biomechanics from the University of Cambridge. He passed the Investment Management Certificate in 2012 and was promoted to Portfolio Manager in April 2015. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, James, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. So by way of reminder for our viewers and listeners, could you possibly just first of all go through the investment objectives and policy of the fund? No, absolutely. And, and hello to everyone listening as well. And I'll, I'll give you it firstly in a very brief terms and then maybe expand a bit. We kind of start off with the idea that we're looking to protect and grow the, the real, i.e. post-inflation value of the capital that, that our clients, our, our customers entrust to us. And honestly, investing in equities in general has been a pretty pretty fantastic way to achieve that. If you, if you stretch your time horizons perhaps beyond credulity, then look, looking back over the 20th century, if you've avoided equities, if you've kept your, your investments in cash, you've lost 98% of your value. If you've, if you've invested in equities in general, you, you've appreciated by 29,000%. So, you know, that, that sort of which translates to a 6% per annum post-inflation return. So that, that's a good starting point. But actually, we think it's possible to, to do over time a bit better than the overall market. And we try to do that by being selective, by doing research, by deploying really concentrated funds, uh, long-term portfolios, looking to identify and buy better than average businesses, and then really to hold on to them, you know, let, let them do the work, let them compound the underlying returns. Okay, so... How does that filter through to your sector and country allocations? Well, honestly, we, we don't have any, or at least we don't explicitly target any weightings to specific sectors, to geographies. So, so the, those companies that I just referenced, the, the, the better than average businesses, the ones that are able to earn higher than average rates of return to the equity that, that, that we're entrusting to them. I mean, if you think about it, when a, when a company goes to market, they do so to raise capital. They then invest that and try and earn the best rate of return they can on that capital. Some businesses are better at doing that than others, frankly. Not all companies are created equally. And we are we're looking for the ones that can do that and can do it defensively over long periods of time. They have a moat around the business that they can they can kind of protect those high rates of return from competitors. Now, they are rare. They're not easy to find. I think if we kind of self-constrain ourselves by targeting a certain geography or anything like that, you know, we're, we're making it that much harder to find those companies. That said, actually, when we look back, when we look empirically, when we look at markets, when we look at the history of companies, of sectors, there aren't actually that many areas where we find the kind of the great businesses that we're after. When you look at our portfolios, you'll see there's pretty much only three kind of sector themes that, that we're invested in. We're, we're invested in consumer franchises, really great consumer brands where they've got heritage, where that heritage attracts loyalty, where that can be then built up over, over generations. You know, that, that's a pretty good place to be. We look at other owners of, of intellectual property, sort of media, data, software companies, those that have 
I'm going to say completely differentiated offerings. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that more in a bit, but th there's a moat that derives from that. If you are the only one that can offer something, then you have pricing power associated with that. You have loyalty associated with that. And then we look to invest in networked marketplace type businesses that actually found pretty permanent ways to lock in their, their customers. So yeah, by, by and large, the, but those are the three buckets that we, that we find ourselves invested. Country-wise or geography-wise, um, we, we really cluster into the three big sort of developed markets of the world. So the US, Japan, and, and, and Western Europe. And given our incredibly low turnover approach, and that means very rarely selling things, very rarely buying new stocks, actually none of these sort of allocations to the extent that we have them, they, they, they don't change very much. Okay, so you've described the sort of companies that you're looking for. In terms of your top holdings or positions, could you perhaps talk us through one or two of those? Quite, quite nicely. I think, I think currently the top three holdings in the fund hail from one each of those three sectors. So maybe we can approach it that way. The, the first one maybe is Diageo, a consumer franchise company. Then, then the other two might be the LSE, the London Stock Exchange and, and Nintendo. Uh, anyway, c come on to them. But if I if I start on Diageo, just give a little bit of background to it and why we why we invest there and, and have done for a very long time, more, more than a decade. This is a business now. If anyone's unfamiliar, so Diageo is a is a corporate name. It's a kind of corporate amalgamation, but it's it, it is a a sort of conjunction of of other previously independent companies like like Johnny Walker and Sons, like Guinness brands, like sort of Smirnoff and Tanqueray. And it, it is it is a representation of the kind of I'm going to say the best of the best of the best. Right. So it is the best collection, we think, certainly the biggest, but we think also the best collection of brands within spirits, which we think is probably one of the best sub-segments of consumer staples. And then you've got consumer staples, which I've already, already referenced as being very attractive because you've got that durability and the, the ability to build brands. Spirits, we think, are particularly good because actually the heritage matters even more than for other consumer franchises. Barriers to entry are very high, certainly when it comes to aged brown spirits with provenance, things like Scotch whiskey, things like cognac. So you can have very, very resonant brands that are, sort of exist and survive within that. I, I guess the kind of the, the direct evidence that we like to throw out is, is Johnny Walker, which is Diageo's arguably their most important brand. Two years ago, celebrated its 200th anniversary. So it, it, it has staying power. Yeah, the, the London Stock Exchange to give another sector or a stock from another sector. I, actually, I think I think quite a lot of people aren't aren't familiar with it even as a listed business that you can you can invest in the London Stock Exchange not just via the London Stock Exchange, and it has only been listed for for 20 years. But it goes back a lot further than that, and you, you can actually beat Johnny Walker even in terms of the heritage stakes, depending on how you sort of calibrate these things. The LSE as an enterprise is probably 300 years old. So, as an investor in that, you are from day one. You know you've got something with staying power, and that's that doesn't guarantee you success. But I think it's a, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good starting point. And yeah, the, the LSE has over time it's been making clever acquisitions on top of that. It's built itself into today not just a marketplace where people come because other people are there and they trade with the other people who are essentially locked into that marketplace because it's captured all that liquidity. But it, it is also on top of that found ways to use the data that generates. It's added to that with other acquisitions. It's now probably the biggest financial services data company in the world. And data is is a valuable commodity. Actually, I, commodity is not the right word because if it, if it's a commodity, it's one of the few commodities that doesn't commoditize, right? So it's, if you if you have a data, you know each data set is unique, arguably a monopoly. 
And if, if what you own is valuable, if you own the data that your customers need, let's say your business customers or whoever it is, then that, that's a foundation for a pretty sticky relationship with, with those customers. Uh, yeah, the, the, the third one was Nintendo. I, I think Nintendo is, it's a representation of our holdings in, in the entertainment world. So we own other companies here like World Wrestling Entertainment, like Walt Disney. Now, Nintendo, yeah, it, it, it doesn't go back quite as far as, as DIJ or the London Stock Exchange. Although, although actually, it, it is about 100 years old as a business. But it, it's, it's kind of this best of the best idea. Again, it, it's in our view, the best collection of video gaming IP that we can get access to as equity investors. It, it has, through that, it has leadership of a actually fantastic high margin, fast growing industry, which is computer games. The offering, the content is completely differentiated, you know, and, and I think that is true of, of, of a company like Disney as well, or like WWE as well, World Wrestling Entertainment. Again, the content's unique. It's got a very loyal, in some cases, die hard fan base. And that's a that's a valuable thing. And that that's particularly as technology, other people's technology makes it easier for you to get your product, get your content into your into your consumers, into your consumers' hands and be part of their part of their life. So I you know, think about it. If you if you invest in companies like Nintendo or like Disney, you are an actual owner of a slice of Super Mario or of Pokemon or of you know Star Wars or the, the Avengers, and there are plenty of fans out there that that want to want to watch the next Marvel film. They want to watch the last ones. They want to watch the one that's coming. Only Disney can make that for them. No one else can do that, and that means nobody else can compete away the kind of returns that Disney can can make from that that franchise. And actually, that's a, that's a very nice position to be in. Sure, and and in terms of someone like Disney, presumably it's that ownership of those brands which is caught in the investment case with something like the theme parks being a rather nice cherry on the cake i guess yeah i mean the the, the theme parks are it's a it's a channel for monetization you know that seems like a slightly dirty word almost but you know you you have this content that you're creating the content you own it you have a library you have a back catalog that is different from what other people have and you find ways to to sell it and to make money from it and and that changes over time and it's changed if you think about the distribution how they how how a company like disney would get its content and let's say that's films to begin with in into into the customer's hands way back in the day it's it's the early form of cinema and then it's moving through things like vhs and dvd and blu-ray it's moving online it's moving through smartphones it's moving to video on demand you know there's all these changes in distribution but throughout it You've got the content. You've got the content that people want. You're creating that. You've got the franchises that people are familiar with. Your Disney, you've been building that up over nearly 100 years now. The business goes back 80, 90 years. And yeah, you monetize it through these distribution formats. You monetize it through through the new things that arrive, whether that's Netflix originally or their own streaming service now, through you know, pe- people go to the to the theme parks because they're familiar with the franchises. So it's a way to, to, to as you say, it's a cherry on top. It's monetizing what you've got through merchandising, through theme park rides, etc. And presumably, just out of interest, the world wrestling entertainment holding that you have kind of um, has its own individual attractions, and, and well, for you in particular. Yeah, we, we quite like investing in sport because sport as a as a kind of media property has the, the nice additional characteristic that you, you typically watch it live. You know, there's more value to watching the live program than the recorded one. And that means whilst the shelf life is a bit shorter, the advertisers know you're going to be there and you're not going to skip through the through the ads. And 
the, the, the value of that content is very high. Plus, the fan base is, is very, very loyal. You know, if you're if you're attached to a team, um, and let's say a sports team, and we invest in football clubs as well, then yeah, your your loyalty to that means that uh, you're not going to be priced out of it to a competitor. So you're not going to see a, a, a competing team because the tickets were slightly cheaper or the Sky subscription was slightly cheaper. So you know, I, I think that is a that is a good place to be. I think with WWE, the sport, let's say sport for the sake of argument, <clears throat> is. They, they don't just own the team, they own the entire sport, right? So if, you, if you're a wrestling fan, WWE is almost the only game in town. There are some small competitors, keep it interesting, that's fine. But you know, you, you, it doesn't really matter who wins. They, they even decide who wins because they write the storylines. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you have complete ownership of that very loyal fan base. It is a global franchise. It's it's growing, it's expanding, it's, it's monetizing very nicely as it does so. So yeah, sim, similar attraction. Now, in terms of the calendar, we're pretty much on top of the day, which will mark two years since the first lockdown in the UK. And, and needless to say, it's been a quite extraordinary two years since in terms of what's been happening with the global economy and so on. How did you find that your fund coped over those two momentous years? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And there's two answers in honesty. There's the relative answer and the absolute answer. And, and both are important, uh, but both are, I think, important over slightly different time horizons. So I, I, I give you, I'll give you the relative answer first, which I'm actually, I'm sure your your listeners are familiar with. But the relative performance has been extremely disappointing, and that is speaking specifically to 2021, where our benchmark, the MSCI Global Index, had a, a very, very strong year, whilst our our fund was more or less flat. I mean, very mildly positive, and. I think, honestly, given how disruptive the pandemic was from an absolute perspective, I think flat is not all that bad. But that's not going to come as much consolation to our investors who clearly see other returns, you know, much better returns elsewhere. I think, you know, bringing it back to this idea of time horizons, I think fundamentally what we have to do, and again, bringing the absolute idea as well, we, we have to look at how the portfolio companies did themselves. We have to look at the underlying business performance. Actually, we're, we're pretty encouraged, almost uniformly, and there's going to be one or two exceptions, but across a portfolio of, of 24, 25 names, almost all of them both entered and are exiting the pandemic in, in incredibly strong shape, you know, as business leaders, of, of very attractive sectors with strong balance sheets. You know, businesses like Diageo or London Stock Exchange or Nintendo, you know, that they, they are clear examples of this. In many cases, they're also boasting record earnings, particularly where there's a kind of digital component or a trading up premium component to what they do. And actually that that is true of all three of those companies. But for various reasons, that hasn't always been mirrored in the share prices. And yeah, th this is a short term versus long term. So let's take Nintendo. Nintendo fell 15% share price terms, or total return terms uh, in 2021 on the back of very, very strong earnings. So it derated as a share. But if you look over the last 10 years that we've, that we've owned the company, I, I think it's up five or six fold. So, I, you know, it's this idea that, that you know, short term, the market's a voting machine, long term it's a weighing machine, and actually the progress of the business is eventually reflected. But in in a very disruptive year like last last year, that, that didn't come through in every case in, in share prices of our companies. With that in mind, and especially bearing in mind that at the start of your interview, you mentioned that you're very much low turnover. Did you find that the pandemic threw out some more opportunities to revise your portfolio, or did you pretty much hold? 
not not really. Um, yeah, uh, it was a, it was a holding year. I mean, g- given given the relative weakness we saw in that year, broadly speaking, that means that things we didn't own, and a lot of those were big kind of tech companies, the things that used to be called fangs, they they went up a lot. And by the way, some of those we 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 really like as businesses, not all, but some of them we really like. And you know, part of our job is to is to look for the right entry point, certainly versus the other things that we already own, you know, which are also great businesses. So if they went up and became more expensive, while some of the things we, you know, we did own, like Nintendo or the LSE, became cheaper, I, th- I think for us the rational thing to do was not not try to buy new stocks, but but actually where we had cash flows, look to look to allocate more to the companies that we already owned that were that were cheaper that had de- that had derated in that in that year. In fact, we haven't bought a new stock since the summer of 2019, and and we're comfortable with that. I, I think frankly, it it can be the most rewarding thing to do in the long run to 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 keep you know buying more of the stuff you own that you're comfortable with, with that you're familiar with, so long as the thesis is still intact, so long as you can you can see the business is doing well. You know, that there will always be something shinier out there that, you know, that looks on, on, a, on a short-term view more appealing that, that you can chase after. But I think if you're always doing that and always chasing after it, the consequence is going to be higher and higher turnover. And that that starts to eat into the thesis of buying these great long-term businesses because you're not holding them for the long-term in the end. So pulling that all together, James, and, and I think you've probably co- covered most of it as as we've been speaking, but certainly without asking for any sort of um, market prediction, which is uh, finger in the air, air stuff, as we know, but but presumably that means that in terms of your current positioning and outlook, you're, you're pretty much in the same place, despite the volatility we're seeing at the moment still. Yes, I, I think that's, that's broadly true. It has to be said, 2022 is shaping up so far slightly differently and that's not us predicting that but that's just observing what's already happened interest rate hikes starting to come in different sorts of volatility input cost prices rising some of those sort of expanded valuation multiples that, that, that we were seeing over the last couple of years coming down again I, I think i think if you watch closer you might see some more portfolio activity in the coming months but don't expect anything anything very radical <laughs> maybe that's the maybe that's a caveat to, to dampen dampen expectations but I, I think may, maybe maybe there are opportunities emerging and it's it's an interesting time for it but yeah there's uncertainty out there I mean uh, uncertainty volatility it's kind of a, it is as it says it's uncertain right so you you know we, we won't claim even with rough precision i don't know if that's an expression but that we you know we don't know when the when the next rate hike is coming you know we we don't know how long covid's going to drag on for uh, obviously there's geo, geopolitics in the background i think you you also don't know what the market's response to this sort of stuff would be even if you knew what was coming and so i, I you know i quite like to sort of point back to the covid idea that let let's say you saw the pandemic coming would you would you then have guessed that with two years of complete global upheaval that the, the market would have its best kind of two, three year run since the dot-com boom. I, I, think, I think that's the, you know, exactly as you've, you've highlighted, that's the challenge of this. So our, our response is really to kind of stick to the companies that we hope will do well, whatever happens, as, as trite as that sounds, that if there is the chance of volatility, that obviously that there is at a minimum, you know, go for cash generative companies with strong balance sheets, Look for things like heritage, survivability. Combine, you know, if you can combine that with co- long-term compounding at high rates of return, I think that's a pretty, pretty strong winning formula. You know, you, you look for companies that aren't critically exposed 
to stuff that we know can change quickly, like technology, like commodity prices. If you've got companies that are selling real goods, providing real services that the command pricing power, then you can get that inflation protection on top of that. If there are kind of mega trends that you can you, you can identify, and I think there are some, you know, things like the shift to digital, that will be ongoing. The emerging wealth of the developing world, you know, that won't be a straight line. COVID's been a been an impact to that, but but I think that will continue to happen. Then you you, you look for the companies that will benefit from from those sorts of things as well. And yeah, it, it's not a that's not a straightforward set of criteria, but I think we'd argue that that a business like Diageo, like the London Stock Exchange, like Nintendo, you know, they, they do fit that bill. They have they have clearly identifiable modes. So yeah, if you can find them, hold on to them. Maybe don't be you know don't don't try and trade in and out based on based on what you think is going to going to happen next, particularly if you don't really know. Well, you mentioned the word right there, James. I would say it was tantalising in terms of the approach that you mentioned, particularly for our watchers and listeners to be watching this space in terms of Linsall Train. So uh, a warm thank you yet again to James Bullock, the uh, Joint Portfolio Manager for the Linsall Train Global Equity Fund. And thank you for watching and listening. Please feel free to like or subscribe uh, on ii.co.uk, where of course you can find much more by the way of investment insight and ideas. I'll be back soon with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.